Well, good morning. It is good to see you all. You're in good voice this morning. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians together as we continue in our study here. And just a couple things. Uh, for those of you who prayed for my family and I as we were on vacation, thank you. Uh, my boys and I climbed a Mount Beerstead in Colorado, which is a 14er. If you don't know what a 14er is, that's a mountain that's over 14,000 feet. And uh, we climbed it. Our goal was three 14ers in two days. We climbed one in one day. That was our, a little short of our ultimate goal, uh, but we praise the Lord for it. And uh, we're, we're very thankful for that time together. Thank you for uh, your prayers in that. And also, as you noticed on the uh, screen behind me uh, during the announcement time and in your bulletin, we have surpassed a significant goal and our fundraising, we remind, uh, remind you again, we're raising some funds for the Boiler Project. We are halfway to the, better than halfway to the completion of the finances for the Boiler Project that's going on right now. And then we're raising for debt reduction as well. And so uh, we're off to a great start just two weeks in. We praise the Lord for that. And I want to start there. It's God who gives the increase. And we want to praise him for what he has done for us. And so let us take just a moment to praise him for that and to build us into our message this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we look at the challenges of raising funds in this economy in which we're in, and we recognize that the increase that we have seen is only because of your abounding provision to us, given to your faithful servants who have been faithful in giving it as you have directed them. Lord, we look at this number and we recognize that it is a very large number that we're trying to raise again this year, but we are seeing your abounding provision in every way, and so we stop and we pause and we praise you. We thank you for what you have already accomplished. We look forward to heat in the wintertime, and we are well on our way, more than halfway there, just two weeks into the fundraising for that purpose. Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified as we continue to raise the funds that are necessary there. And we seek to glorify you in all that we do and say as we enter into this text that is before us in the defense of Paul's ministry and the message that he proclaimed, that your name would be glorified. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for all of these things. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to change. Thank you. You know, it's one of those things where technology is wonderful. And it's a pain in the neck all at the same time. <laughs> it's amazing how it can be both things at the same time, isn't it? Uh, but I'm glad that we are able to fix that and remedy that issue. We're in First Thessalonians this morning. As we are here, Paul does something that we have started a couple weeks ago. Is, uh, just before I left on vacation, we had started in chapter 2. We are working our way through Paul's defense of his faith. And this defense of the faith, as Paul is proclaiming it, remember he starts out in chapter 2 by saying this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. There is a recognition that Paul is addressing or confronting those who are challenging the message of Paul, the ministry of Paul in Thessalonica. And they're doing so by pointing probably to the charlatans. And saying, look at the charlatans, they've come by and they've, they've received money, they've received goods, they've received an audience, they've received power, and then they move on. Where's Paul? 
Where's Paul at? He moved on just like the charlatans moved on. And so there's an attack on Paul's message, and there's an attack on the person of Paul as well. This is one of those great challenges that we as Christians have to face when we are confronted with challenges that we endure on a day-to-day basis. Today, you're being questioned because you have a stalwart testimony that men are men and women are women. You're being attacked for those things. But you're certainly being attacked for the same thing that we just sang a moment ago. There is one gospel for which we stand. Today, you get attacked for that, Christian. I was... We traversed several states, of course. You know, we leave here and we drive all the way out to Colorado and we drive all the way back. And one of the great things that I noticed is that there is a great desire, excuse me, great desire that everyone would appease my position. If I believe, and that you can walk into any restaurant between here and Denver, and you walk into the restaurant or go to a gas station, and there's all this, I want you to look at me, and I want you to accept me. I want you to accept my positions, but I don't want to hear anything you have to say. We are those who are at this point where it's a challenging point for Christians. We have to defend the faith. We have to know what we are defending, and we cannot defend ourselves. That's where Paul finds himself here in the text that is before us this morning as we begin with godly defined leadership. And godly defined leadership or godly leadership defended is one of those key things that we have a couple opportunities for application out of. First, the application that draws from us, because this is Paul's message to the Thessalonians. We recognize that. We keep it in its context. Paul's message to the Thessalonian believers As we keep it in that context, we also understand that what Paul is doing is defending his authority. But it gives to us a checklist, a checklist to know who is practicing godly leadership and who's not. A checklist to have discernment, to know who is following after the things of the Lord and who is seeking to please men. So Paul is going to give to us a very familiar text as we move through, beginning in verse 3 through verse 7 this morning. And we begin in verse 3 as we recognize that Paul is committed to God's truth. This is the first element of understanding who is and discerning who is a faithful follower of the Lord and who's not. You're inundated with podcasts, YouTube channels, TV preachers, Uh, books. You're inundated by those things today, and the airwaves are filled of all kinds of people. You can pick up a book and go, wow, that was a good book, and have absolutely no discernments with that book, because the author is well known. You can listen to a podcast, and maybe a podcast one that you trust, and yet you've lost discernments. We begin here in verse 3, and Paul helps us by defining not only that he is committed to God's truth, but he's going to attack three things that have been thrust against him. And the first is that Paul's message is filled with error. And Paul says, it is not from error. Notice as he begins in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, he says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved 
by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're going to stop there for now because this is where we're going to start. There's actually three elements that Paul highlights here, and we're going to add a fourth before we're done under this point. He says that his message, his appeal, does not spring from error. In the previous two verses, Paul has set out to defend his ministry against those who are attacking the Thessalonian church. It is a telling statement of the deplorable conditions of those attacking Paul that he must be so forceful in his defense. And I want us to recognize, we may not see it in the black and white on the English page, but Paul is very forceful in his defense, very aggressive in defending the message, the content of the message, and the character of those delivering the message. He is confronting the deplorable conditions that exist that would attack the Word of God. And that's one of the key things that I noticed as I drove across the country and was thinking of this passage. We are quick to attack the Word of God. We are quick to attack the things of God's Word. Let us be those who are quick to defend the Word of God. That's where Paul is at. He's forceful in defending the Word of God. He continues in this direct declaration, and in the process, he provides, as I mentioned ago, practical discernment for us to the individual believer who is confronted with a decision to follow or not follow a certain leader, and you are inundated on a day-to-day basis. Do you listen to this, or do you listen to this? Have you studied the Word of God, or are you studying the thoughts of the Word of God from an individual? And that individual being sorely wrong. Having spoken of the treatment that he and Silas had received in verses 1 and 2, and their response having been empowered by the boldness in, boldness in God and declare the true gospel of God, Paul now presses forward to defend the message. And he calls his message an appeal. That's an interesting f- word for us as well, and so I'm going to draw it out. I'm drawing out the force of Paul's defense, and I'm also drawing out the appeal that he makes. He's defending his message, but he calls the message an appeal. That is, he's seeking to wrap his arm around you and draw you in. He's appealing. He's he's appealing to the sinner, and he's saying, I have hope for you. I have the message that your soul craves. It's fascinating to me that Paul is so forceful on the one side and so compassionate on the other side. He looks at the sinner, the ones who are attacking Paul, and he says, I'm going to attack back. I'm going to defend back. But while I'm doing that, I want you to listen to my appeal. I'm seeking to draw you into what your soul craves for. Beloved, that is what you and I should be in our presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should defend fervently the truth of the Word of God within the confines of the church. And we must stand firm therein. And we must also then reach gently out to the sinners who may be doing the attacking and draw them gently in through an appeal. This term appeal is a reference to the outward appeal in preaching, which was aimed at inducing the hearer to put away their sins and to accept the gospel offer of salvation. That's what Paul was doing. He's seeking to induce the hearer to accept the gospel offer of salvation. 
In verse 3, Paul defends the source of the message. He says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The gospel Paul preached was accurate and authentic. When we look down at verse 13, notice what Paul says. So continue on in the chapter, chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says this, And we also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul is saying very clearly that the message he's delivering is not from the connotations or the thought processes of mere men. The message that Paul is proclaiming is God's message. And if it's God's message, Paul, the apostle, and no other being has the right to change it. So Paul is forceful and appealing. Forceful and appealing. Beloved, there are a lot of Christian authors who are writing bestsellers. And a lot of -of run-of-the-mill books as well. There are a lot of Christian songwriters and podcasters that deny the authority of God's Word as the Word of God. And they do so under the title Christian. Many Christians run after the Word of men because it feels like balm, but it's balm on their gangrenous flesh. The message of Paul was not a message of heaven that would result in hell. He says, my message did not come from error. So we better listen. He also goes on and he says that the message was not from impurity. Not from impurity. This is the second of the three assaults. The first was that Paul's message came from error. The second was that Paul was benefiting in some way from the message, from the appeal. Paul says it did not come from impurity. And there's debate about what this word actually means, but I I think we can understand that this is the idea of somehow Paul dirtying himself by proclaiming a message that he in some way was profiting by, whether that be through uh, some sort of funds or finances, or he was somehow receiving some power or glory or some other impurities. And so the next assault on Paul's message was that it came out of a a heart that was just used to be a, a shyster, a charlatan. Paul says it was not from impurity. He rejects any personal motivations. And by verse 9, notice what he says. He's, appointing, or he's uh, pointing to the appeal of the, his own church, the Thessalonian church. He says this, For you remember, brothers, in verse 9, our labor and toil we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, he says, I want you to remember, Thessalonians, that I profited nothing from my time with you. I gained no wealth, I labored and I toiled night and day, and that was not just in the preaching ministry, but also in whatever other business Paul was a part of, a tent maker most likely, even in Thessalonica. The only money that Paul received was from the Philippian believers. He says, I worked night and day among you, and I received nothing. And you, Thessalonian believers, know that. So Paul's message wasn't from impurity. 
Paul's motives were pure. His motives to appeal to the sinner was not to to find those weak of mind so that they would follow after Paul and give Paul wealth. Now, there are Christians who try to do that, quote-unquote Christians, who try to do that, to prey upon those who would be sucked into their system, that they would pay ransom for doing so. Paul says that wasn't on him. In fact, it is interesting that this would not only be the accusation that was made, but indeed something that would take place in the church and spoken of in the church, both in Paul's time as well as in ours. But listen to Jude chapter 4. We studied this a while back together on Sunday evening, but Jude 4 says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of God into sensualities and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who have slipped into the church, and they've slipped into the church under the guise of Christianity, and as they've slipped into the church, they've given themselves over to sensualities, impurities. And those impurities are sexual, but they're also financial. It doesn't take long to cruise the airwaves to find news of those who have pursued, whether it be sexual or financial, impurities under the guise of Christianity. Paul says, my message, my appeal to you did not come out of some goal of bringing you around to give to amass wealth to myself. We spoke of this a couple years ago. Paul was not trying to be a preacher with sneakers. He says also it wasn't from error, it wasn't from impurity, and it was not from deceit. It was not from deceit. He says again here in verse 3, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The final of the three attacks on the message of Paul was that it was an attempt to deceive. Paul confirms that the Thessalonian believers had not been lured toward Christ with false hope. So this is the antagonist. They're standing outside and they're attacking the church in Thessalonica and they're slipping inside the church in Thessalonica. So you have both attacks from within and from without and they're attacking Paul and his message and they're saying that Paul preached to them a gospel that was filled with errors, a gospel that came from impurity so that it would enrich Paul and that he was trying to lure together a following after himself. That's the same attack that is used over and over and over in our world today by those who are doing the very three things that they're attacking the church for doing. Paul's message was not from error. It was not from impurity. And it was not from deceit. Therefore, when the church proclaims the message that Paul proclaimed, they're proclaiming the same message as the word of God that is the voice of God. And let us not change it. Let us not find ways to manipulate it. That's what was being accused, and the accusers were the ones actually doing it. Paul says it did not come from error, it did not come from impurity, it did not come from deceit. Furthermore, he says that it was approved by God. Look in verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. 
Paul calls upon the testimony of the Lord's approval as evidence of the message's content, the appeal, the apostles' appeal. He says, this did not come from me, and we ourselves have been approved by God. Paul is working as one approved by God. He has the proper credentials. That's what he means, is that he has the credentials to proclaim this message. Now, Paul's going to add to that, the weighty statement to that in just a moment. But this, in and of itself, is a strong statement. Some of your Bible translates this as we begin in verse 4, where the ESV says, but just as, some of your translations say, on the contrary, separate and different from what the accusers are saying, we have been approved by God. We are those who have the authority of God because we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel of God. The gospel that Paul and Silas preached was of God. Hence, they were not following the delusive errors of the attackers. They had been divinely commissioned to preach this gospel. Hence, they could not be unclean in their character or motive, or they would be disapproved. Their aim was not to please men, but God, who tested their hearts. Hence, their appeal was not meant to deceive and was not deceptive. The word approved is a term that means that they had been tested like a precious coin and found to be genuine. This was a testing that was before the proclamation of the gospel. This was a testing that was done before Paul and Silas reached the Thessalonian church. This word also implies that they were tested before the commissioning work and during the commissioning work. God was the approving agent. And so if you had a problem with the message, take it up with the one who gave the message. That's what Paul is saying. And that is what you and I ought to say as well. If we know someone and we have discerned that someone is twisting the truth of God's Word, the problem is not with God's Word, the problem is with them. We also must be careful that we discern that. We must be those who know the Word of God, and when it's been twisted, we know that the one doing the twisting is the one who is wrong. We do not live in a day and age where it's friendly. We don't live in the friendly confines, as it were. We are those who live on a day-to-day battle where Paul in Ephesians says that we are to put on the full armor of God. We are engaged in a moment-by-moment battle, and sometimes the enemy is from within. They call themselves Christians. They look, they act, And they speak Christianese, but they are the attackers. Paul is calling out the attack as it is impacting the church at Thessalonica. It's also important that we understand that neither Paul nor Silas were novices. God called and tested these men to the task of being entrusted with the gospel. And what an important statement that is, that they were entrusted with the gospel. God had approved them and entrusted them. None of the attackers of Paul's character and message could truthfully say the same thing. I wonder how many authors, podcasters, songwriters, 
preachers today would bear the approval of God for the task that they say that they have been assigned to. We must be discerning. And we must use these three statements that Paul has said, followed by the approval of God, as a discernment test. Does their message change the Word of God? Does it come in some way that they have been impure, whether that be sexually impure, which is rampant in our world today, or financially impure, which is also rampant in our day? If they have, let us identify them as false and reject them. Are they those who have come with some sort or some element in which they are deceiving and trying to get you to follow after them? They're twisting the Word of God just a little bit so it's more palatable. Paul's going to call them what they are in just a minute. Pleasers of men, not pleasers of God. Notice how he does it, because this is still in defense. Paul is still defending. And he now tells us that he is consumed by God's call. And he, is, he would rather be pleasing to God than pleasing to men. Pleasing to God. Paul adds another description, because the attacks go on. We'll see those attacks in verse 5 again, as there's a, th- a set of three more that's to come. But in the middle, he says this, at the middle of verse 4, he says that we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. This is a description of Paul's work. He is working diligently not to please humanity, not to please people, but to please God. Paul rejects any notion of trying to tailor the message to please people. Wouldn't that be refreshing for us today? To hear a message not seeking to please people. You know, and it's honestly, and I've said, uh, perhaps I've said this here before, I've said it in other times in ministry, if you walk out of a message feeling happy every single time, I have failed in my duty. If you walk out of here sometimes feeling like, wow, I have a lot of work to do in sanctification, amen. 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 If you can walk out of here feeling comfortable every Sunday, you are in the wrong place. Paul is clear. He is not seeking to please people. That does not mean that we should not be happy. That does not mean that we should not be comfortable at times. It means that we should be willing to grow. We should hear messages from the Word of God that cause us to grow. Paul rejects any notion of changing the appeal to receive a favorable reaction from people. It is not about the response of people. It is about God's view of it. To receive, to tailor a message, to receive a favorable reaction from people is to be disqualifying from ministry. You can do that in a fraternity or sorority. You could do that on college campuses. You could do that on the internet. You can amass huge crowds. That's what politicians do. But that's not what a preacher does. And that's not what Paul does. Our message does not change. Our message is the Word of God, and it remains there, whether we like it or are comfortable with it or not. And we are not, Paul says, he is not a people pleaser. He is not a people pleaser. 
This one kind of flies right into the face of the deceit. Uh, can you imagine the attackers? They, they're standing here and saying, well, Paul, your message is from error and impurity and, and deceit. And Paul says, I don't care what you think. I'm approved by God. And my message is for the glory of God because it is God's message to be delivered to you as God's message to you. I'm not concerned about what people think. How difficult is that for you and I? Let's just take a sober self-assessment for just a moment. Could you agree with Paul that when you proclaim the gospel, you are not seeking to please people? When you stand in the authority of God's word, that you would not seek to please people. Paul resolutely refused to compromise his message to gain human favor. Yet, and here's the balance, yet he was anxious to conduct himself to be pleasing to men, if possible. So without changing the message, could Paul be pleasing? This is where we run into some challenges. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to turn here later as we celebrate the Lord's table together, but here we're going to turn earlier into the book. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 through 22. Notice what Paul says. I refuse to change the message, but I'm not intentionally irritating. That's what he's saying, ultimately, if I could summarize it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, where the Scripture says this, "...to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak." I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So Paul is removing himself, removing his own personality even, so that the message will not be tarnished by his antagonism to those on the other side. Beloved, let us listen carefully because I think the American church has missed this point. Paul refused to change the message. Absolutely refused to change the message but he would become all things to all people in every other way. This is challenging politically. This is challenging on Facebook. This is challenging generationally. This is challenging ethnically. I so appreciate, and I've probably shared this illustration as well, several years ago I was in Hong Kong and I met a young lady who could trace her spiritual genealogy all the, way, all the way back to Hudson Taylor. Oh, what an astounding testimony of spiritual heritage passed from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, finally reaching this one young girl who was manning a Christian bookstore in Hong Kong. The reason Hudson Taylor had such a significant impact is, unlike all of the rest of the missionaries who were sent out from England of the same time period, he adapted to the cultural mandates and standards of the Chinese. He grew the ponytail. He wore Chinese dress. He spoke Chinese. He allowed music to be in Chinese and written by Chinese. He did not keep the Stoic clothing and the Stoic manner of the English. 
He adapted to culture and he became Chinese in every way and was evidence of what Paul has said here. So the Chinese, Hudson Taylor became Chinese. And he reached the Chinese for the sake of Christ. So that many generations later, they could still say that their spiritual heritage started when Hudson Taylor spoke to a great, 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 great grandparent. And it was passed from one generation to the next. Not in familial lines, but in spiritual lines. Beloved, that is what Paul says. He goes on in chapter 10, verse 33, and he says this. He says, just as I try, actually, let's move back to 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul says, I try to remove myself out of the way so that they would hear the gospel and the gospel only. That's what it means in when you just sang a few moments ago, I stand on the gospel of Christ alone. If you are to stand on the gospel, you will remove yourself as an, as an obstacle. And you will proclaim the truth. You will appeal as the apostle appealed. And that is what Paul is doing here. This is a delicate but important distinction. And this is what we all must be doing. Paul and Silas were consistently aware, rather constantly aware, that it was God who judged their heart. Go back to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this at the end of verse 4, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul and Silas were constantly aware that it was God who judged their heart. Although these men had been cleared and tested by God, they were under continual testing by God. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Paul says we have the stamp of approval from God himself. And we continue to receive the stamp from God himself. He continually tests our hearts. Do you stand up to that kind of scrutiny as a believer? Where you know that God is constantly alert. These men had been cleared and tested by God and they were continually tested by God. The awareness of this fact made that kind, the kind of impurity or deception and made that impossible for them because God was watching them. It is the most significant reason that they could give for not preaching from unworthy motives. Why were they not following these things that the attackers said? Because they were concerned about what God felt and how God would test them. It is a fearful thing to be tested by the all-knowing, almighty, holy, righteous God. And we all are. The awareness of this is something that every preacher of the Word of God should have quick on their mind. James says that a teacher will incur a more strict judgment. It is a fearful and solemn thing to be tested by the Lord. It is not Paul's main purpose, but he has provided for us in this moment a checklist for discernment. How much do you know about the author of the book that you think is just the best? Or the podcast that you just listen over and over. And yeah, there's some errors. And yeah, they have some problems. But you're willing to dismiss those. How much do you know about the character and the call of the preachers you listen to, including the one that stands behind this pulpit? Are they seeking the approval of men? Or are they seeking the approval of God? 
That is a solemn and fearsome question. Paul did not water the message down. He goes on now, verse 5. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people. So Paul is going above. The attacks have ceased. Paul goes on. He says, We didn't even speak out of flattery. There's three here, too, that he speaks of, and we're going to get into them. They're kind of in the background of our outline. The first of them is flattery. Paul did not water down the message to flatter the hearers. And again, I say that if you walk out of the church building this morning feeling like you're the center of attention, you're in the wrong place. If you are the center of attention, if you're the focus of everyone's observance, you need to leave that church because that church has the wrong priorities. Paul did not preach that people would feel warm fuzzies. That wasn't his purpose. He made an appeal that they would for the sake of sin, that they would forsake sin and believe in Christ as their Savior. He made an appeal that they would turn from their evil, wicked ways and turn back to, or turn to the things of God. That is repentance, once saved then. That they would walk in humility, putting aside sin on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, and walk in the Spirit of God. And beloved, you and I will always be about that work. Paul was not preaching for warm, fuzzy feelings. He was not preaching for flattery. Flattery words were not part of Paul's repertoire. (laughs) When you looked at a list of his vocabulary, flattering words weren't on it. Paul did not flatter. He did not resort to the repugnant style of the religious rhetorics. They were verbal manipulators that used language in order to gain power or advantage over the flock. And again, Paul speaks to the assessment of God in just a moment. He says, nor were we greedy. We didn't come seeking to add to ourselves anything. In fact, we lost. He says this, God is witness. He again turns to the ultimate source of appeal. God is his witness. He did not do those things. Finally, this last point, he is compelled by God's glory. He's compelled by God's glory. We're going to speed up just a little bit, but this is nonetheless important that we have already discussed. Verse 6 says, For we did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul seeks God's glory. Paul seeks God's glory. Beloved, this is a quick assessment of a preacher, of a sermon writer, of a songwriter, of a book writer, of a podcast writer. Do they seek to give God glory in everything? Paul turns back to, to their conduct among the Thessalonian believers, and he says, you yourselves know that we... And did not seek glory from people. He appeals to the plain fact that these believers in Thessalonica knew all of this. That Paul is just stating again 
synthesizing it for the record, and he's placing it forward. Paul is not giving any kind of pretense or pretext. So you know what we were among you. He appeals to the plain fact that they knew it to be true. Some would use the platform afforded a preacher to build a reputation of public esteem, and certainly those were going on in Paul's day, and you better believe they're going on today. They're more rampant today than ever. Paul says, I could have used my position as an apostle to authenticate his message or to demand financing, yet he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Instead, he reminds them that he was gentle in his ministry to them. Verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul's ministry is as gentle as a new mother to her newborn child. It's a gentle ministry. Instead of harsh demands and heavy-handed tactics, there's a, there's a lot in both within solid Christianity and false Christianity. There's a lot of preachers and church leaders and ministry leaders who are very heavy-handed in their tactics. Paul says, I could have been that, but I was not. I wasn't heavy-handed. I wasn't harsh. The Thessalonian believers saw a gentle and nurturing aspect to Paul's appeal. The word caring for that we find here is in verse 7, that they were gentle, uh, taking care of their own children. That word for caring for means, properly means to warm. In fact, it's used in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 6, of a, a bird covering their young with their feathers. Paul says, I've covered, covered and protected you. This word for care portrays the mother's protective care and tender love for her children. This is true shepherding, and Paul did it among the Thessalonians. He bore the assaults of the wind and the waves. And meanwhile, the fledgling little church huddled underneath the protective wings as Paul made an appeal. And Paul reminds them of the proper motivation. This, too, is an important element of discernment. What is the motivation? This that we find here in verse 7 is a lovely picture demonstrating Paul's unselfish conduct in dealing with these believers. A nursing mother cares for and protects her offspring without seeking profit or honor for herself, but is intent upon bestowing benefits to her child. So too, Paul and Silas cared for their beloved converts, and they had no thoughts of selfish gain. Consider the behavior and the attitudes and actions of a new mother compared to a new father. It's 3 a.m. A mother will wake up to the sounds of a little tiny whimper. The father will say, honey, the baby's awake. The mother will take and gently nurse the child. At 3.30, as the mother is starting to doze back off to sleep, the child removes a portion of what it had eaten earlier. And the 
young father says, Honey, I think the child needs changed. The young mom will dutifully get up, care for her tender young child. At 6 a.m., she will do it all over again. Having barely gotten any sleep, and she will do that over and over and over and over again. That is how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians. That is how a shepherd of the Word of God will minister to the saints. He will get up over and over and over again. It's pretty easy to stand behind a desk and deliver podcasts behind a microphone, never having ministered to the people that's being reached. It's pretty easy to write songs or books without ever having to interact with the people of God. And heap for yourself wealth, heap for yourself all these benefits. Paul says, I was like a newborn, a mother of a newborn child caring for you, Thessalonian church. Let us listen carefully to the appeal. Let us listen carefully to the type of ministry that Paul conducted. Paul conducted a ministry that was filled with truth, not error. That was pure, not impure. That was factual, not deceptive. That was approved by God. Let us remove all teachers that influence us in spiritual things who do not fit the same as Paul. Let us be found faithful to listen to the Word of God, to apply it faithfully, to not twist it or to deceive with it. Let us be faithful followers who discern the truth. Let me close this portion in a word of prayer as we prepare to participate in the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the testimony of the Apostle, a testimony that demonstrates the love of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the truthfulness of Christ to the church at Thessalonica in the face of critics, those who attacked. What a challenge for us. It's very easy for us to listen to the critics and say, well, you know, they have a point. We praise you that Paul is so forceful in his defense of the message so that we too would be defenders of the gospel. We sang it a moment ago, may we be those who stand on the gospel. May we be those who will refuse to change it, to flatter the ears of people to deceive people, to enrich those who proclaim it. May we instead be those who stand steadfast and firm as Paul did, and yet with a compassionate arm of appeal, seeking to reach those who are lost, even those who are doing the attacking. Lord, as we prepare to partake in the Lord's table together, it is a 
solemn opportunity for us to be in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Pray that we would take this table in a manner worthy, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, may you be exalted as we continue in our worship service this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.